Book 4, Chapter 2, Part 2 of The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 4, Organization, Chapter 2, Part 2, The Tribunal. It was impossible to get rid of those who held offices under these grants for successive lives, but efforts were made to reduce the numbers of the class that had not been put up at auction. In 1677, Valladares represented to Carlos II that the income of the Inquisition did not meet more than half the expenses for salaries, prisons, etc., wherefore he recommended that as vacancies occurred, the offices should be suppressed until, in the busiest tribunals, there should not be more than three inquisitors, a fiscal, and four secretaries, while in the smaller ones two inquisitors, a fiscal, and three secretaries would suffice. The king assented, and the plan was enlarged by leaving unfilled other superfluous places. Like other reforms, this was not permanent. In 1695, Carlos caused Rocaberti to investigate the personnel of the tribunals and to enforce the regulations of 1677. About 1705, Philip V, in his attempted reform, instituted a searching examination into the increase in numbers and salaries since the time of Arce y Reynoso and of Rocaberti, and the inquisitor-general Vidal Marin again put in force the schedule of 1677 which continued to be nominally at least the rule at intervals as in seventeen fourteen seventeen twenty eight and seventeen thirty three inquiries were made and reports were ordered from the tribunals doubtless with a view to see that the limitations were observed for under the bourbons the inquisition was held to an accountability much stricter than of old we have seen the futile effort of philip v in seventeen forty three to reduce the overgrown numbers of officials in the santa cruzada and inquisition it was possibly in connection with this that Prado y Cuesta, on his accession in 1746, demanded from all tribunals detailed reports as to all officials and their salaries, stating any vacancies or supernumeraries, and whether there were more familiars than were allowed by the Concordias. The answers to this ought to give a complete census of the Holy Office. In the appendix will be found a table compiled from these returns and also the report from Murcia, at that time one of the most active of the tribunals, which give a tolerably clear inside view of existing conditions these documents represent an institution which had outlived its purpose rapidly falling into decadence no longer commanding popular veneration and chiefly useful as a refuge for those who were content to live on a miserable pittance and virtual idleness the diminished number of consultors indicates as we shall see hereafter that the consulta de fe was falling into desuetude while the army of calificadores points to the fact that the chief business consisted in the censorship of the press and the prosecution of propositions requiring theologians to define them the irregularity in the number of commissioners is explained by the murcia report which shows that for the most part they were omitted from the statements but it is not so easy to understand the absence of alguaciles of whom at least one would seem to be necessary to each tribunal there are many honorary officials and others serving without pay while still others are jubilado or retired especially among the secretaries and where there are two receivers one is jubilado or absent the paucity of keepers of penitential prisons shows that that punishment had become practically obsolete with the absence of confiscations the juez de bienes has disappeared except in majorca the blanks in the returns of familiars although information concerning them had been specially demanded may be due either to the tribunals keeping no registers of them or to concealment of the fact that the numbers allowed by the concordias were exceeded that there were serious omissions indeed is proved when we consider that the total aggregate reported is only nine hundred and fifty one while the census of seventeen sixty nine gives two thousand six hundred and forty five as the number of those admitted to exemption through connection with the inquisition during the interval between this and the next census in seventeen eighty seven strenuous and successful efforts were made to diminish the number of exempts 
in spite of which the employees of the Inquisition had increased to 2,705. Surveying the table as a whole, it will be perceived that the higher offices of inquisitors and secretaries had rather increased than diminished from the standard set by Baledares in 1667. Yet there was virtually no serious work for them to do. Their predecessors had successfully enforced unity of faith and little remained except to repress all freedom of thought and aspiration for improvement. How they earned their salaries by laborious trifling is exemplified in 1808, when three inquisitors and an inquisitor fiscal of the Valencia Tribunal pottered for eighteen months over the case of a poor laboring woman accused of, quote, superstitiones, unquote, because she had suggested certain charms to some of her neighbors, and finally concluded to suspend it and to order her parish priest to reprimand and threaten her. The tribunals were constantly complaining of their penury and of the inadequacy of the salaries, doubtless with reason but the pressure for appointment precluded the wholesome reduction in numbers which would have afforded relief it was probably with a view to some practical readjustment that the suprema repeatedly in seventeen seventy six seventeen eighty three seventeen ninety three and eighteen o six called upon the tribunals for full and exact reports of all employees if so the only result was a trifling increase in the salaries of the lower officials averaging about fourteen per cent leading to a complaint in seventeen ninety eight repeated in eighteen o two that the pay of the secretaries and messenger, the hardest worked of all the officials, had remained unchanged for a hundred years, while the cost of living had quadrupled and they had been deprived of their old exemptions and emoluments. It took, as the Balencia Tribunal declared, half of their salaries to rent a decent house, which would seem to show that they were no longer furnished with dwellings. The excess of officials is emphasized by the fact that the Inquisition was empowered to call upon every individual for gratuitous service. Its commissioners were told that, if there was no appointed notary available, he could make another one serve, and, when he summoned any one to accompany him on duty, even to a distant place, if the party refused to go, he was to report the fact to the tribunal that it might take the proper steps. Temporary commissions were constantly sent to the parish priest or to a canon, even when their names were unknown, with instructions as to what they were required to do. As the real work of the tribunals diminished, there was an increasing habit of deputing what remained to outsiders. Inquisitors, who did not decide more than five or six trivial cases in a year, were too indolent to investigate denunciations or examine witnesses and would issue a commission to some priest or friar to do the work for them. They spared their subordinates in the same way. Thus, in 1791 at Barcelona, there was some reason for identifying a man described as Alejandre Balle, sergeant in the 2nd Battalion of the Walloon Guards. In place of sending one of the underlings of the tribunal on so simple an errand, a formal commission was made out of francisco luke augustinian prior who in due time reported that he had found him in the sixth battalion if the salaries were trivial so was the work which earned them offices were virtually held for life although the commissions technically expired with the death or removal of the grantor for we have seen that with each change in the inquisitor generalship the new incumbent renewed them and the interregnum was bridged over by the action of the suprema this did not cover the financial officials who held from the crown and the same process was required on a change of sovereigns. Thus, when Philip II died, in 1598, the Suprema made haste to inform the tribunals that Philip III confirmed all the judges of confiscations, receivers, and auditors. Thus the incumbents came to regard themselves as holding vested rights in their offices, and in fact were technically called, quote, proprietors, unquote, of them, a corollary to which was to consider them as property, subject to hereditary transmission, or to transactions more or less disguised. A tendency to nepotism seems to have manifested itself early, for the instructions of 1498 forbid the appointment in any tribunal of a kinsman or servant of the inquisitors or of any other official. 
The force of this was weakened, in 1531, by a decision of the Suprema that the deputy of the receiver of Valencia was not an official in the sense of the prohibition, a decision which opened the door to hereditary transmission by enabling fathers to introduce their sons as deputies in their offices, as we have seen in the case of Jeronimo Therita. Still, the prohibition was held to be in force, and in the instructions to visitors, one of the points to be investigated was whether two members of a family were employed in a tribunal. Like all other wholesome rules, however, there was no hesitation in violating it. When the Tribunal of Lima was established in 1570, it was specifically called to the attention of the inquisitors, but they had scarce been installed when a letter from Secretary Bazquez ordered them to appoint Pedro de Bustamante, brother of one of them, to any office for which he was fitted, and he was duly made notary of sequestrations. Hereditary transmission seems to have been favored from an early period. In 1498 we find Ferdinand not only approving the resignation of Pedro Lazaro, alguacil of Barcelona, in favor of his son Dionisio, but increasing the salary of the latter because he is a person who cannot live upon the regular stipend. So, in 1502, when Juan Pérez, notary of the tribunal of Calatayud, was incapacitated by age, he executed a will leaving all the papers and documents to his son Juan, and Ferdinand confirmed the bequest and empowered Juan to act. So completely did this become the policy of the Inquisition that when an official died, leaving a minor son, the place was filled temporarily till the boy should reach adult age, and he was provided for meanwhile. In 1542, Luis Bajes, notary of sequestrations in Saragossa, died and Tavera appointed Bartolomé Malo to the vacancy, ordering the receiver to pay from the fines and penances five hundred sueldos a year to Juan Bajes, the young son of Luis. Accompanying this was a private communication to the inquisitors, informing them that Malo was appointed only until Juan should have age and experience for the position and, as the arrangement does not appear in his commission, a notarial act must be taken so as to ensure Juan's succession. Secret arrangements such as this, however, were not usually considered necessary. The next year died Miguel de Oliban, notary of the Secreto in the same tribunal, when a temporary appointee was inducted who divided the salary with Juan Pérez de Oliban, son of Miguel, till he should be old enough to take the place. The requirements of age were waived in favor of such transmissions. About 1710, Carlos Albornoz, receiver of Valencia, asked to be allowed to transfer his office to his son, age 12. This was refused, but when, two years later, he renewed the request, it was granted. Of course, the service suffered from the incompetence of those thrust into it, but when they were absolutely unfit, they were allowed to employ substitutes, who served for a portion of the salary. Thus, when Juan Romeo, in 1548, resigned a notariate of the Juzgado in favor of his brother Francisco, Valdés wrote to the inquisitors that he hoped that Francisco would soon learn his duties and be able to fill the office personally, without employing a substitute, as had previously been the case. It would be useless to multiply examples of what was of daily occurrence. Officials were constantly resigning or retiring on half-pay in favor of their sons or grandsons or nephews, who were accepted as a matter of course. So completely was office regarded as property that a bereaved widow sometimes held it as a dowry with which to tempt a new husband, or was granted a pension on it to be paid by the successor, or a man with a marriageable daughter would secure the promise of the succession for whoever would marry her, or if he died leaving a girl unprovided for, the tribunal would kindly look up a husband for her on the same conditions, as in the case of Juana de Trevino, daughter of Antonio Espanon in Valencia. Unluckily, the first suitor failed to prove his limpieza, and another one was found in the person of Antonio de Bolsa. The natural result of this was to found inquisitorial families who continued through generations to live on the holy office, rendering such service as might be expected from those who held their positions to be personal property, 
like purchasers for four or more lives. Many examples of this could be cited, but a single one will suffice. In 1586 we find Juan del Olmo officiating as notary or secretary of the Valencia Tribunal, whether the first of the line or not does not appear. In 1590, his widow Magdalena asked the reversion for her son Joseph, to whom it was given, and during his minority it was served by the alcaide, Pedro Juan Vidal, who gave a third of the salary to the widow. In 1623, this Joseph secured the succession for his son Joseph, who seems to have been a somewhat turbulent gentleman, for in 1638 he and his son were accused of the murder of his fellow secretary, Julian de Palomares. Escaping punishment for this, he died in 1644 and was succeeded by his son, Giuseppe Vicente, who in 1666, not without difficulty, obtained the reversion for his son Vicente. The latter was still functioning in 1690. Who followed him I have not been able to trace, but the male line seems to have failed and the office to have passed to a nephew, for, in 1750, it is filled by a Vicente Salvador y del Olmo. Philip II was not blind to the evils of this abuse, and, in his instructions of 1595 to Manrique de Lara, he ordered that offices should not be transferred to brothers or sons unless there were special cause, and the recipients were capable of filling them without appointing deputies. But Philip III reversed this in 1608, in his instructions to Sandoval y Rojas, and prescribed that, when an official died, his children should be borne in mind. In the instructions of Carlos II in 1695, there is exhibited the fatal Spanish tendency of recognizing evils while tolerating them. He prohibited the transfer of office, save from father to son or from brother to brother, when there is a just cause and the appointee has capacity for the position, for it had often happened that sons and brothers so appointed were unfit, or were so young that the Inquisition had to wait long to its detriment and even more so when substitutes were taken temporarily, for they went out with a knowledge of the secrets of the Inquisition and imagined themselves no longer bound to secrecy. Yet after this clear admission he proceeded to repeat the order of Philip III that, when an official died, care was to be taken of his children. Of course the warning went for nothing and the abuse continued to the last. A certificate of Limpietha issued November 23, 1818, to Juan Josef Paris describes him as secretary of the Tribunal of Toledo, on half salary, while his father, Juan Antonio Paris, jubilado, has the other half. When there was no lineal successor available, the custom arose of granting, doubtless for a consideration, coadjutorships with the right of reversion. In 1619 the tribunal of Valencia took exception to this and consulted the Suprema, resulting in a decision not to recognize such transactions for the future. They still continued, however, and in September 1643 a papal brief was procured prohibiting them, in spite of which a well-informed writer tells us that the inquisitor-general still granted them. Another frequent abuse was saddling an office with a pension in favor of some representative of the previous incumbent or even of a stranger, suggesting collusion of the appointing power. Even inquisitors themselves sometimes accepted office under these degrading conditions. In 1636, a commission issued to Don Alonso de Vuelva, as inquisitor of Toledo, bore on its face the full salary, but it was secretly coupled with the condition that he was to draw only the half, while the other half was given to Don Francisco de Valdez. A man taking such an office on these terms would probably not be nice in his methods of recouping himself. Still more suggestive of this was the not infrequent custom of taking office, quote, sin jajes, end quote, without pay. Thus, in 1637, the licenciado Pedro Montalvo accepted such a commission as notary of the secreto in Toledo, and in 1638, a similar one was issued for Cordoba to Pedro Gutierrez Armentilla. 
even inquisitors did not disdain to stoop to this as when in this same year sixteen thirty eight dr bilia viciosa took the inquisitorship of murcia without pay it is easy to understand how a system such as this should encumber the tribunals with useless hangers-on whose only serious duty was the drawing of salaries so well was this understood that when in the confusion of the war of succession there often was not money enough to go around an order was issued that those who were performing duties should be paid in preference to those who were not so one of the features of the reform of seventeen o five attempted by philip v was a royal decree declaring null and void all commissions issued without carrying the obligation to work in the office that no jubilation with salary should be granted without consulting the king and that no ayuda de costa or other gratification should exceed thirty ducats without the royal assent malfeasance was stimulated by the excessive tenderness which forbore to visit misconduct with punishment warnings and threats were freely uttered but rarely enforced and even when the penalty of suspension was inflicted the term was apt to be reduced before expiration this patience under repeated and prolonged wrongdoing was partly owing to the paternalism which generally governed the relations between superiors and subordinates but principally because dismissal was a public acknowledgment of fallibility endangering the popular veneration which the inquisition sought to inspire it was so from the first it is true that the reformatory instructions of fourteen ninety eight declare that any notary who does what he should not do shall be condemned as a perjurer and forger and be perpetually deprived of office besides such other penalty of fine or exile as the inquisitor-general may determine but this carried few terrors for offenders the power of effective punishment lay exclusively with the central head which was not readily moved to active indignation by offences committed at a distance a letter of ferdinand may seventeenth fifteen eleven to an inquisitor who had complained bitterly of a subordinate and evidently had asked his discharge embodies the principle to which the inquisition remained faithful to the last the complainant was told that when any of his officials was in fault he was to be admonished if he persisted he was to be rebuked in the presence of his fellows if this did not suffice consultation was to be had with those who had been present and every care be taken to avoid injustice before going further for the dismissal of officials of the inquisition is most odious the utmost caution must be observed that it is founded on justice and the success of the work depends on all living in harmony this forbearance ferdinand himself practised in cases which might well move him to inflict summary chastisement when the inquisitor himself proved incorrigible he might be suspended for a year or two but the usual course was to transfer him and inflict him on some other district in extreme cases he might be jubilado or retired on half pay as was done with officials who were superannuated or too infirm to work dismissal was almost unknown and i have met with but few cases of it jubilation might be either a reward or a punishment in the earlier time when an official was obliged to retire on account of age or infirmity he was taken care of with either a pension or a substantial gift of which various cases are to be found in the records in time this became an established custom known as jubilation and the retiring pension was usually half the salary sometimes but not often deducted from the salary of the successor applications for jubilation were common as men grew old or incapacitated and we have seen in the enumeration of the tribunal of murcia how many wage-eaters of this kind weighed on the finances of the inquisition the use of jubilation as a punishment affords a striking illustration of the tenderness shown to offenders instead of the deserved dismissal they were shielded as far as possible from disgrace and were retired with a pension thus placing them on a par with aged officials worn out in service so far was this sympathy carried out that in the instructions of carlos the second to rocaberti in sixteen ninety five he is warned that as jubilation inflicts grave discredit even sometimes involving risk of life it is only to be resorted to with ample cause after taking a vote in the suprema 
how superfluous was this caution could be instanced by a number of cases of which it suffices to mention that of miltra thapata who about sixteen forty succeeded his father-in-law as alcaide of the secret prison of balenthea then the correspondence of the tribunal becomes burdened with complaints of his disorderly conduct he was constantly getting into scrapes and being tried on various charges among others that of hiring four soldiers to commit a crime of violence at length in place of dismissal he was jubilated with a life pension of twenty thousand marabedis in silver and his office was given to his cousin crispin ponce the titulo de jubilacion issued to him by sotomayor describes his long and faithful service for which he is thus rewarded and was assured of the enjoyment of all the exemptions and prerogatives attached to his office though his subsequent conduct was so disreputable that in sixteen forty two it was felt necessary to deprive him of them when this was the policy observed toward incapable and delinquent officials it is not difficult to understand the financial troubles of the holy office and the grievances endured by the people the natural effect of this misguided leniency was looseness of discipline and indifference to duty inquisitors could inflict fines on their subordinates except the fiscal but for serious offences they could only report to the suprema and as they had no power of appointment or dismissal it was impossible for them to exert adequate authority how little control they possessed is indicated when in fifteen forty six it was necessary for the suprema to issue a formal order to the janitor of the granada tribunal to shut the inner gates of the castle which was its residence at such hours as the inquisitors might designate and if he did not do so he was to be reported for such action as the council might see fit to take under such a system it is not surprising that in the suggestions for reform in sixteen twenty three it was proposed to give the inquisitors power to punish and suspend for the tying of their hands resulted in insubordination causing grave troubles in the tribunals end of book four chapter two part two